<laughs> All right, against that, set Paul's commission that we heard in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus tells Ananias to go to Paul and to say to him, you are to tell this man, he is my instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to tell him all that he is going to suffer for my name. The vivid details of the passage this morning are going to help us see how that was fulfilled. And we return, if you would, to the city of Philippi, the chief city in the province of Macedonia. Philippi was a Roman city, and it was ruled, if you would, by magistrates. And now, many of you are probably old enough to remember the expression, it's time for you to take your licks, all right? And maybe some of you didn't know what this is. This is a, a dowel rod, a wooden rod. And the magistrates that ruled these Roman cities, particularly Philippi, had a couple of law enforcement officers that went with them. And these law enforcement officers that symbolized the authority and the rule of Rome were called lictors. And they carried a bundle of rods bound together with a leather thong with an axe in the middle. And when somebody was going to get their licks, they would take the rod from the bundle and they would administer the punishment ordered by the magistrates. And that's what's happening this morning as we read our passage. And what I want you to do is, as we read it, think about the fact that the one who wrote this book, Luke, and Timothy were probably standing there watching what was taking place, hearing the thud of every rod and the crack of every whip. Luke, if you uh, might know, is widely considered to be one of the leading ancient historians. And what he writes is accurate. In fact, Philippi is one of the most excavated ancient cities in the world. And architect, I mean, archaeologists have even found the very judgment seat before which Paul and Silas stood in Philippi. So what we have this morning is an accurate account. What we have is a true writing and recording of those events. What we have before us this morning is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. So put yourself, if you would, for a moment in the shoes of Luke and Timothy and stand, for me for the, stand with me for the reading of the Word of God from Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 32. You'll find this text printed for you on your insert along with an outline on the back. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. 
At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners had realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the instrumentality of your servant Luke, you have given this record to us to remind us of how the gospel advances, how your servant Paul has come to believe that he is unashamed in every way of the gospel of Christ. We pray this morning as, as we hear the preaching of your word, it would be your Holy Spirit speaking to us in and through the power of your word and the power of your gospel, changing our lives, calling us into a deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Having imagined that, let me ask you a question. What was it that made Paul unashamed when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, I tell you, if after the first time I preached the gospel I had been beaten with rods and flogged, I would have said, I'm not going to do that again. You see, that kind of punishment oftentimes wound up as capital punishment. It was that severe. Now, there are several things in this text that really show us why Paul came to be unashamed. But let me begin at the beginning where it began for him and it begins for us. What Paul knew about the gospel, he knew its resurrection power. David had eloquently told us last week how that power had been expressed in the conversion of Lydia how that resurrection power came and opened her dead heart, took that heart of stone, 
and transplanted it for a heart of flesh. He knew it for himself. On the road to Damascus, he was struck blind, and his eyes were covered with like scales. And then we're told when Ananias prayed for him, those scales fell off of his eyes, and those eyes that were blind were then opened so that Paul could see the one that he was ashamed of, but see him as the Savior who was unashamed to die for him. He knew it by personal experience, and he knew it that Jesus was unashamed of him, and the gospel had transforming, if you would, literally resurrection power for those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. Now, the fact of the matter is, your salvation and my salvation's a miracle. Don't let anybody tell you God is not doing miracles today. When you are dead in your trespasses and sin, the only way you can be made alive is when the Spirit of God comes to you and makes you alive. And that is a miracle. It is, if you would, resurrection power. And I trust that all here this morning have experienced that. I also trust that if you haven't, by the time this message is over, you will consider the Savior who was unashamed of you and you will trust in that same Savior and His resurrection power. Now, if just knowing the resurrection power of the gospel was not enough, Paul also knew its power over evil. We see in verse 16, while they're in Philippi, they encounter a demon-possessed slave girl who has a spirit of divination, or if you would, sort of of prophecy, doesn't this remind you of things back in Cyprus when Paul and Barnabas are confronted by Elimaeus and he seeks to thwart their work with the governor? The reality we see there is that when the gospel is on the move, the power of evil, the power of Satan is also on the move. The confrontation is there. It was there then and it is here now. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always arrayed against Christ, against his gospel, and against his people. There's a very interesting thing in this text. The spirit of divination which held this slave girl in the Greek is a word that when we translate it over into English is the word python. It is a word derived from that ancient serpent who guarded the mythological oracle of Delphi. But I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to imagine anything that could hold you in a tighter grip than a python, than a python that in its constricting power, every time you exhale, tightens up and tightens up and tightens up a little more until you can no longer breathe and you suffocate. And that is the spirit that bound this slave girl. It's the same kind of spirit that binds us. We are held in the devil's grip before we are saved. We're not in the Lord's hand. We have to have that grip removed. And how was it that Paul decided to break that grip? He turned and he spoke to the spirit. He spoke to the spirit and he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. Let her go. 
And Jesus broke the devil's grip on her. He was unashamed of her. He was unashamed to break it on Paul. He was unashamed to break it on me. He's going to be unashamed to break it on you. The gospel has the power over evil. And Christ is unashamed of us. And you know, if you haven't had it happen to you already, all of you, young people or old people, are going to come in our world to a place where you meet some version of the crazy cancel culture or, or wacky wokefulness, which says you need to deny Christ. You need to be ashamed of being a conservative Christian. And when those kind of moments come, whether they come from a peer group or whether they come from a professor or wherever they come from, you are going to need to remember that Jesus was unashamed of you. And when the world calls us to be ashamed of him, we need to remember how unashamed he was and that we will not be ashamed. Now, having broken the grip, if you would, of evil on this slave girl, we understand even more the drama that begins to unfold as Paul and Silas very personally come to know the gospel and its power over suffering and despair. Now, it's almost impossible not to note the similarities between what happens to Paul and Silas and what happens to Christ. Paul and Silas are brought before the magistrates by those who love money and power. They lost the ability to make money with this slave girl and they lost influence and power by using her ability to predict the future. And so they are furious and so they drag them before the magistrates, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees had dragged Jesus before Pilate. And then what takes place is an unjust trial, a trial that has no semblance to anything that would be called justice. In the middle of that trial, just like in Christ's trial, the mob is hostile, where they would shout to Pilate to crucify him, now the crowd joins in and, and calls the magistrates, if you would, even to, to punish them. And so the magistrates decide to strip them naked, to utterly humiliate them before the crowd, just like Christ was stripped naked before he was crucified. And then stripped naked, they were beaten, beaten with rods, and then flogged punishment brutally inflicted on them to the point literally when they were dragged off to prison, they were half dead. And then they're dragged off to prison and literally entombed there, not just in a cell, but in an inner cell. And the guard is charged to guard them carefully, literally at the price of his life. If they escape, he's a dead man. And then not being satisfied with putting them in the inner cell and guarding them, he puts their feet in stocks so they can't move. Christ on the cross had his feet nailed to the cross. And then he was entombed just like they were entombed in the inner cell. And his tomb was guarded just like they were guarded. 
It just seems to me that this could not possibly have been lost on Paul and Silas, that they were suffering for the sake of the gospel, much like Christ himself had suffered. You know, as we hark back, think about the power of the gospel over evil and how Paul broke that power in the name of Jesus Christ. Many of us, if not every one of us here this morning, has somebody in our life or somebody in our family that we're praying for who doesn't know Christ, whose very life is in the grip of that ancient python. And what is it that we can do as we have that battle? We can do the same thing that the Apostle Paul did. Call upon the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ to break the grip on that person. And when do we start? Anytime. When do we stop? Never. For that power is without end. And so we find our two men in a situation where we would look at it, we would say it was absolutely hopeless. And what are they doing when it's hopeless? They're praying and they're singing. I don't know about you, but I find, I find it hard to do. And they're singing Psalms, the hymn book of the Old Testament. Think about Jesus. What was he doing as he hung naked on the cross, having been beaten and crucified? He was praying, he was talking to his father, and the evidence is clear that he was reciting Psalms, particularly Psalm 22, and he was doing all this so that we might have a gospel ourselves to hear. And when they're doing this, what happens? Suddenly, we're told that the dungeon is filled with light. And in his darkest hour, when Jesus was on the cross, he was not ashamed of sinners. He would even pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in our darkest hour, he's not ashamed to come to us. We need to remember that. Our Savior is unashamed of us. I mean, I can't tell you in the past six years how many times in the darkness of a hospital room, tethered to IVs and tethered to all kinds of instruments, or from an operating table in suffering and despair, how many times I recited in fear and desperation psalms hymns, and spiritual songs. And every time I did that, I can tell you that the Lord Jesus was unashamed of this sinner's plea. Remember, please, that you will never encounter suffering so severe, a dungeon so dark or so dank, to cause our great Savior to be ashamed to join us there. And finding that to be true, what else did Paul know from this experience? He knew the power of the gospel to free. Verses 26 and 27 are the inspiration 
for Charles Wesley's great hymn, which we are going to sing this morning. It literally tells us that Jesus knows how to shake things up. The foundations of the prison shook, the door jams were jarred, the doors fell open, and the chains fell off. Do you recall what happened when Jesus died? At the moment of his death, we are told, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, that the earth shook and the rocks split, and the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. There is no order, if you would, that has been established by the evil one that Christ will not shake up. This all pictures that ultimate, final, and climactic shaking which will come. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us of this. It looks back to Mount Sinai when God shook Mount Sinai. And he says this, the author, he says, at that time, his voice, the voice of God Almighty, will shake the earth once more. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken will remain. And so knowing the power to save. Paul knew, knowing the power of the gospel to free, also knew the power to save. We see this demonstrated in the jailer. The people, the prisoners all heard the gospel. The jailer heard the gospel. All of a sudden, what he thought was a massive jailbreak takes place, but it's not a jailbreak at all, and he's about to kill himself because if the prisoners are gone, he is going to die. And Paul says to him, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer is astounded. He is astounded at what is taking place. He is beginning to understand as the light of the gospel had flooded the dungeon, it had opened his eyes. And the jailer comes to Paul and to Silas, and he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? And in that answer, we know that Paul was unashamed of the gospel because he knew the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior who was unashamed of ruined sinners. And he said to that guard, the answer to your question is this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Have you ever had someone who's really important to you? A parent, a grandparent, a sibling, a teacher, a friend? Have that person say to you, I'm ashamed of you. If you ever had that happen, you know just how painful that is. I mean, if I am true to myself, honest with myself, looking back on my life, if I were Jesus, there would be countless times that I would have said to myself, I'm ashamed of you for what you have done. Thankfully, 
Jesus died for us. While we were yet sinners, while he knew who we were and what we would be. And he died for us. And he was unashamed to die for us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the assembly. Those words, I am ashamed of you, you are never going to hear from the lips of your Savior who died for you. And so what is the answer to our question? What is it that made Paul unashamed of the gospel? For Paul, it was knowing that no matter what, that no matter where, that Jesus was not ashamed of him. Therefore, he was not and would not be ashamed of the gospel. May it be the same for each one of us, that we would be unashamed of our Savior and his gospel, for he was unashamed of us when we needed him most. Amen.